as we continue through Matthew 26, we're kind of taking place, we're watching what's taking place on the Thursday night before Jesus will be crucified on Friday. Jesus' ministry has been going on for about three years. And as you kind of study this and think this through, you understand that there's a level where he had had considerable success with the crowds and people had listened to him. You know, his, his background, his words, his works, all of those things revealed who he was and demonstrated that he was the Messiah. Yet the religious leaders all along the way, if you studied Matthew and read through it with us, you see them reject Jesus over and over, even one time saying he must be from Satan. I mean, there's all different kinds of things that are taking place as that this is unfolding. Honestly, as you watch these religious leaders, as they're moving along, though, they fear the crowds. And so they don't always do to Jesus what they would want to do. But finally, in this text this morning, we're going to see this all unfold. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we studied the Passover and we said that Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. He is saving. He's rescuing His people. And, and we're going to see that unfolded. Uh, we have seen that and we're about to see that what Jesus was saying before them as they said, take this food and take this bread and take this wine and you do so in remembrance of me continually because I'm going to rescue you out. It was so much greater than just a rescue out of Egypt. It was a rescue from sin and from death. All those things Jesus is doing. Last week we see Jesus facing His rescue operation and looking at the cup in a sense. We see Jesus say, Lord, do I have to drink this cup? Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. What is the cup? It's the cup of the wrath of God. And so as we're looking at that, we see Jesus, the torture and the torturous kind of thoughts that are going on as He sweats drops of blood and focuses in on what He is about to do. But in the garden, He prays and prays and prays. And finally, He comes up resolved and He knows I'm about to go and take the wrath of God. God is going to punish me for the sins of my people. And so as we kind of begin that, as we work through that this morning, now we're going to come to the place where Jesus is going to leave the garden. He's going to begin to move outside the garden. He is going to meet up with His betrayer. And He is going to be, he's going to be taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, and He's going to be sentenced there. So all that is taking place this morning. Now, as we see that, Jesus is... I don't know what's going on here. Let me see if I can move this. Jesus is the willing sacrifice. Is there something, Ryan? Well, no, that's new battery. <laughs> We've been changing that. Is that... Okay, maybe that... Okay, so here's the thing. As we are looking at this and we're thinking this through... That was last week. No, I thought it out there. I was like, oh, good night. Okay, so as we're looking at this text this morning, we're seeing Jesus as the willing sacrifice who is chosen to humble Himself for His people. And what we see about man in this text, just as you try to think it through, we see man is naturally inclined towards allegiance to himself. His self-preservation. You see disciples run, and you see that the leaders trying to destroy Jesus because He's going to take over their place. They are afraid of what He might do. That's kind of where we see that. And I want you to think about something real quick in your own life. When we see Jesus' willing sacrifice and Him laying Himself down for us, and yet we find in our own selves a lot where we, we want to preserve ourselves. And I think this morning in this text, this is the height of trying to preserve oneself. Some of you maybe if having fun is the most important thing. 
Some people work can be the most important thing. Some people their school can be the most important thing. Some people just their position in society, their wealth, all those things can be most important and they can kind of trump Jesus. And you're going to see that in this text this morning. So as we move through, hopefully you'll begin to see and understand and grasp and work through it. So let's start in verse 46 and we're going to look at verses 46 and 47. Now, as you look at that text, it's just important to see Jesus is not sitting there trying to hide out. Jesus is not saying, look, let's go hide in our little secret hiding place. But He goes to meet the betrayer. He comes up to meet Judas. And Judas came. Now remember, Judas is one of the twelve, the text says. It's an interesting thing. Judas is very close to Jesus. He is just hours before he's been in there when the Passover was taken. Judas knew Jesus. He was with Jesus. He comes. Judas comes. And there's a great crowd with him. Look what it says. With swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So in that deal, you see this, this big group. Judas is not alone. Judas left alone. He goes and gets this enormous group of people and they come back to meet up with Jesus to take him. So I think it's just important that you note that. Now, what do we learn about Judas? Judas would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, he betrayed the Son of God, the one who he could have hoped in. He is the one who is the, the greatest fool, you might say, in this story. Even in your own life, you may have seen, and we've talked about that before, someone like Judas, they seem to be walking along with the Lord and they're doing all these things and they're involved in the church and then they rebel against the people of God and they turn against them. That's happened throughout history. We have seen this take place. Judas-type disciples. Judas abandoned the life to come for this present world. And you note that here. Now, who's involved in this crowd? Just kind of, you want to sketch this out. It's not all in this text, but there's Judas. There's the high priest's servant. He's involved in this group. He's standing there. We have a band of soldiers. A band was like 600 soldiers. And so, most people would say they probably didn't send the whole band, but it's the idea that there's numbers of soldiers, maybe a couple of hundred soldiers, Roman soldiers like they have their swords. They have everything coming to meet up with Jesus. You have some of the temple police that would have been there to come meet. And maybe some of the chief priests and elders of the people. It was a large group like showing up in the middle of the night to capture one. I was thinking this week, I don't know if you've ever seen Young Guns. It's about Billy the Kid. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have. Anyway, there's a point where Billy the Kid is like surrounded and they bring in. It's not just like a few guys coming to get Billy the Kid. It's like the whole army shows up, you know, and they're trying to fight. Well, Billy Kid was a, he was a fighter. I mean, he was somebody who's going to fight back. He's going to cut people down and shoot them, all that kind of stuff. Billy the Kid's going to fight his way out of that battle. Jesus never in any way demonstrated anything that would say that Jesus is going to start fighting his way out. He is not a criminal. He is a peaceful prophet who has been going around saving people and rescuing people from their disease and disorder. He's calming seas. He is someone that he is the prince of peace and they're coming at him like he is a warrior going to fight his way out. Now, as we move ahead, notice in verse 48, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man and seize him. Now, you think about kissing, uh, uh, you kind of think, why is Judas kissing Jesus? That's kind of weird. Well, in that culture, it was normal for them to embrace one another, to kiss one another. I remember studying First Thessalonians with a group of youth one time, and 
And we got to chapter 5, and it says, greet one another with a holy kiss, you know. And all the guys were like, what is that, you know. And so one of them took it literally, and he saw my dad, and he ran up to him and kissed him right on the cheek. You know, my dad was like, what in the world? He's like, it's a holy kiss, brother. It's a holy kiss, you know. But, but, but you see kind of in that there, there's this element where he is embracing him. It would be something like, some people say, I only shake hands, whatever. Or you embrace someone with a hug that you've seen. You're, you're, you're coming almost as a friend. But it's almost like he's a friend with a knife in his hand, you know. And so you see Judas coming. He's, he's showing the sign of affection while really it's the sign to, to bring the demise of Jesus. It's a, it's a very sad moment here. And he says, greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him. Now, look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, again, it's kind of a strange kind of feel because he says, friend, do what you came to do. Then he came, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Again, seizes, seizing him like he's a criminal. Seizing him like he's one who, who, would, who would come back to them and fight against them or try to get out of the fight or call his disciples together to go to war against them. None of this is true of Jesus. Jesus, in this picture, you see him. He comes willingly laying down his life. So, keep noticing in the text in verse 51. Peter, y'all know, we've been studying this as we've been studying this text. We know Peter, and we know he's pretty volatile sometimes. He's a very passionate man. And so he's standing there watching all this take place, and he draws his sword out and swings down. He was probably not just going for an ear, right? I mean, it's not like, I'm going to cut that guy's ear off, and then it's going to stop everything. He's probably swinging for his head, and the, the high priest's servant like moves out of the way. He cuts his ear off. And in that moment, you see Peter kind of taking this into his hands. Now, it's interesting. Jesus, again, showing his humility, showing his willingness to go, stops Peter, stops the moment, heals the guy's ear, and tells him, do not pull out your sword. Do not go. We're not fighting in this way. Now, notice what verse 53 says. Because it's important to see this. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send to me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, we said that earlier there was a 600 in this band. A legion was 6,000. So Jesus is saying, do you not think that I could not in one moment call down 72,000 angels to destroy this bunch of people? It would be simple for me to do it. I have all the power, all the authority heaven at my disposal. There is nothing that this little band of men who come thinking they are going to face the Messiah, the King of Kings, the rulers of the universe, he, he could do, we could do anything. I could crush them with a word. He says, but that is not what it's all about. Look at verse 54. But how should then the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So you kind of notice this going on. You, you see Peter kind of taking this on his hands. In his own hands, it's not what he was to do. He was not to cut somebody's ear off. Peter needed to know that Jesus had all the power. He should have known that and all the authority. But ultimately, this was God's plan. From before the foundation of the earth, it was God's plan to save a people through the Son. Actually, in John, Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. It was the eternal plan of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to accomplish this work. Jesus must die. 
Jesus must die. Peter had to get it in his mind. It's not a place to defend. Jesus must die in order to save His people from their sins. If Jesus doesn't drink the cup, then Peter dies and spends eternity in hell. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Verse 55. Notice as we keep moving. Jesus asked these people, have you come out to see a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? It's almost like, you know, you do think more of that like a crime drama on television where oftentimes like the, the lead character will go in to get the robber without backup and get all messed up. And, and Jesus is saying, this is crazy. I, you don't need to come to me in this way. I'm willingly offering up my life. Notice what he says. I used to walk around. Jesus spent all this time among people. He would be among us. He would be out walking among the people. Not only that, He would go into the temple and He would preach. And, and what Jesus is drawing here is this. All along the way that these leaders are afraid, they fear the crowds and they will not do what they want to do because they're afraid that it might hurt them and hurt their place with the people. So they sneak in, almost like stealthily moving in, bring in a large group of people and they arrest Jesus before their eyes. Now I want you to hear something real quick about the crowds. Just to kind of to hear this. In Matthew 7, it tells us that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 9, 8, when Jesus did all of these works, they said, we can't believe the authority that God has given to men. In Matthew 9, 36, that it, the Scripture says that Jesus had compassion on them like a... like He understood that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That, that the people out there did not have people who really genuinely loved Him. They had leaders like this. And Jesus understood that and so He shepherded the people. He came alongside the people. He showed compassion to them. He protected them. He, he gave His life for them. He served them. That's what Jesus did over and over. Now, just recently, the leaders would have known, it's probably still ringing in their ears, that the crowds went before Jesus when He came into Jerusalem on a donkey and they said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so there's this whole building that's going on and all of this stuff is taking place. And Jesus now, they're trying to say, how can we silence Him forever? How can we quiet Him forever? Now, I want you to listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Isaiah 53.12 says this, Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many and makes the intercession for the transgressors. The idea here is that Jesus gave His life. Jesus gave His life willingly. But you, and you see Him pouring out His life on behalf of the people. You know what the disciples did? In this text, what does it say? As soon as all this went down, they flee. They flee. They take all. It actually says that one young man was running along and somebody, he came up there and they grabbed this cloak and he ran away naked. Like, I mean, he was, they were just fleeing and running and scared. All of this stuff going on. And so in the middle, they've been saying, Jesus, we'll stand with you. We'll die with you. We'll give to you. But they run in the midst of this moment. Now, so what do we learn? Just kind of stop for just a moment and say, what do we learn in this text? What do you see? We see Jesus as the one who comes to meet His end, who willingly gives up His life, who lays it down on behalf of 
his people. He calmly goes like a, like a, like a lamb to the slaughter, the scripture says. He calmly moves and comes for the people. He lays down his life. He crawls up on the cross to endure it for us. I love what Travis said earlier. If you think that you can't be forgiven, if you think that, man, I've sinned too much, you've, you've missed it because Jesus is laying down his life. He willingly goes to the cross and he says, look, my blood is enough. It was the precious, spotless blood of the lamb as he lays down his life. You wonder, does God love me? You see in this, God demonstrated his love for us, even that while we were sinners, Christ died. Christ willingly gave up his life. Now, I want you to kind of move through and notice as we go to verse 57, Jesus is led to trial. Now, all of this is not mentioned. Everything that goes on here, first, Jesus goes to initial kind of a spot before this, but this at this place, it's in the middle of the night, and Jesus is going before the people uh, that are going to condemn him, and you're going to see this unfold. Jesus goes to trial. Look at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now notice what happens. These people are coming together and basically they come get Jesus in the night. They take him to the high priest. He's standing before them. It's before really this group of elders and high priests is called the Sanhedrin. It's like the ruling religious body in, in Israel. And so he's standing there before them in the middle of the night. They've been drawn together to, to face, he's, Jesus is going to face them head on. Verse 58. And Peter was following him as a di- at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter, it evidently, he may have fled too, but he comes back. He just wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. There may be some level in him. He just wants to do it. We're going to see next week that, G- that Peter is going to deny him, but he tries to get close and understand what is taking place. Now, in verse 59, they begin to call up people. Have you ever been to in a courtroom and you see, okay, we got a witness number one, witness number two, witness number three. What happens in Israel was there had to be two witnesses that would agree. And so the first witness comes up and he says something. The second witness comes up and he says something crazy and misses it. And so then, and then they keep calling these people up and nobody gets their story straight. Nobody could come together and say, oh, there's two witnesses. There weren't two witnesses that agree. Why? Because Jesus was the innocent Son of God. They had nothing to say against Him. They could say, we want to kill Him, but we don't know how to kill Him because we can't find anybody that could say something truly against Him. Now, notice what takes place. And the last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, check this out. So they're all coming up. Nobody agrees. Finally, somebody says, well, he said this. He said he could destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. What about that? And so what does that really mean? Honestly, though, it's a misrepresentation. What did Jesus say? The Gospel of John says that Jesus said the temple was His body. He would lay down His life and on the third day He would come again. Jesus is the presence of God. When He says the temple, He is the full embodiment of God before us. But these men come with this and they don't. it doesn't really answer the question. It's a misunderstanding completely of what He had said. Now, Notice what we keep going, and you keep moving through this text. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remains silent. The Scripture tells us He is completely silent. He, he is accused, but He's silent. He's not defending Himself. He's not standing up for Himself. I was thinking about um, a movie this week of Pride and Prejudice. I don't know if you've seen it. I probably mentioned it before. It's kind of a what you call a chick flick a little bit. My wife makes me watch it. No, she doesn't make me, but but I, I do uh, like like uh, Holmes says. I, I I watch it with my precious. You know, I'm excited about you know. So anyway, I've grown to kind of enjoy. It, but there's this Mr. Darcy in this picture, and he is an extremely wealthy man, and he has rescued this family, and they don't know it. And the mother in this family is this horrific lady. She's a foolish, foolish lady. And she can't stand Mr. Darcy. Even though he had rescued them and saved them, she could not in any way stand him. And yet, even when she would make accusations against him, he just remained silent. You see that over and over. But with Jesus, in a much more great way, you see, he is not guilty of anything. And they're trying to come and bring false things. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus created the world. Everything that is, is His. He created it all. He sustains it all. He's the ruler of it all. Jesus gave the law that these men supposedly are upholding here. He gave that to them. He's, he's the one that gave the Ten Commandments. Jesus is the one who upholds the law. He is the high priest. This high priest that's like a false priest who's a foolish priest. He comes before Jesus, but Jesus is the great high priest. He is not, he's the one who will finally and fully take the sins of the world. The greater fool in this room is this Caiaphas who's bringing before the Son of God accusations. Now notice what happens. It says, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest comes to Jesus and he's appealing to the highest court. He comes to Jesus and he's saying, By God's name, you tell me, are you the Christ? You, you tell me. I mean, he, he says, throw aside all these people that are coming up. We can't really find witnesses. I ask you now, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, what you say is true. He is answering, I am the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus brings that to the table. It's enough for them. You're going to notice how they get so fired up. But notice what Jesus says. From now on, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's the picture from Daniel chapter 7 where the Son is standing there exalted high above heaven, the ruler of the universe. All, all of the world's nations submissive to Him. He is reigning in power. He is sitting at the right hand. And all the enemies of this present age are sitting under His feet. And Jesus says, I will be raised. And when you see Me again, note this, you think right now that you have control over Me. I am willingly giving My life. I am willingly taking up the cross. I am willingly laying it all down. But the next time you see Me, I will be the reigning Lord of the universe. Mark My word, you will see Me in power. You will see Me at the right hand of God the Father, at the throne of God, standing there before you. When you see Me, you will see Me in all of My fullness when you see Me again. These men, these men, 
if they don't repent, will be the ones crying out for rocks to crush them. Because they have stood against the sun and they will not win and they will not prevail. Then the high priest tore his... You can almost see him. He's been looking for a way. How can we silence Jesus? He tears his robe. That's an idea of like great anguish. He tears his robe and he said he has uttered blasphemy. What other witnesses do we need? Because they couldn't really find anyone to bring any valid complaint. You have heard this blasphemy. He looks out at the 70 men and says, what is your judgment? And they say, kill him. He deserves death. He deserves to die. And in this, there's this unanimous verdict, let's kill him. Now we're going to find out later they're going to come back together and they're going to sentence him to death. But at this moment, they say, let's crucify the Son. Let's kill him and take him out. This is murder in the first degree, you might say. This is totally what you would see. This is murder before your eyes in this moment. And guess what they begin to do? They begin to spit in his face and strike him and some slap him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. You see Jesus willingly going, laying down His own. He has all the authority of heaven. He humbles Himself coming to the cross. And you see these men saying, you know what? I see Jesus. We understand there's no evidence against Him. We know that people have seen all His power, His authority. We've seen His authority over all things. He's demonstrated everything that the Messiah was supposed to demonstrate. And then they see Him there and they want to crush Him they want to silence the Son and they begin to curse God. And they begin to abuse the Son of God. And they begin to strike God. And they begin to slapping God. All of this taking place. This is blindness beyond comparison. They are looking into the face of God. The exact representation of God. And they want Him dead. And in this moment, Jesus willingly lays it all things. Now, what about you? When you stand looking at this, when you see the Son, when you see Him giving of Himself, when you see Him laying down His life, when you think about Him calling you to follow Him, when you see the suffering Messiah, would you ever want to reject Him? Would you ever want to turn away from Him? Why would we ever think, you know what, I don't have time for Jesus. Do you see Him? Do you see in this moment the way they're treating the Son of God, the ruler of the universe? Do you ever wonder in your own life if you were to watch Jesus and all of a sudden He began to go against all of your uh, religion and all of your activities and all the things you do in your religious life. And, and as He began to come and confront all the hypocrisy and all the darkness and all the corruption in you, do you ever think, you know what, I wish I could silence Him. I wish I could turn Him off. I wish I could do Him like a radio and say, be quiet, Jesus. Get out of my life. I don't want to hear Your voice. I do not want to be faced with the Son. Have you ever found yourself there? You know what? Sometimes you think you're not really there, but let me ask you this. Are you finding yourself longing to hear from Jesus? Do you find yourself spending time seeking to understand what Jesus wants for you? Seeking to grasp what He has for you? Allegiance to the Messiah is the primary thing here instead of 
preserving yourself. But when you live outside of the Messiah's rule, outside of the Messiah's Word, outside of what He has to say to you, you are arrogantly standing against the Son. I don't want to hear from you, Jesus. I don't want you to lead my life. I don't want to follow you with everything that I have and everything that I am. We sometimes think these men are so horrible, but if we're honest, often we want to silence the Son. And yet, you know what Jesus says on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know what it is. He knows they don't really see it. They really don't. As they're slapping Him and crucifying Him, they don't understand. But later, now listen to this, and I want you, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And I know we've looked at this before, but I want you to see it again. Because these who, who are saying crucify Him, destroy Him, silence Him, He deserves death. Peter is going to speak to these people in Acts chapter 2. And he's going to say in Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Again, revealing that He was Messiah, that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up. He willingly goes. It's under the Father's direction that He goes. He is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before Me, for He is at the right hand that I may not be shaken. Now notice in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? You people who participated in the death of the Son, you who are saying crucify Him, silence Him, get Him away from us, kill Him. This was a part of the divine drama God had planned before since before the foundation of the world. And so Peter stands up in their midst and says, Repent! Repent of your rebellion. Repent of your rejection of Christ. Repent and believe the Gospel and turn to Him. And I ask you this morning, is, has that ever been in your life where you've come to the place where you've realized that your sins are the reason Jesus died, no doubt, for the, as the Father directed Him, but He died for His people so that they might be saved and rescued from sin and, and the wrath of God. And yet, in the crowds were those who were screaming out, Crucify! 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 But then, only a few days later, their hearts would be broken and they would cry out, Lord, save me. They would repent and trust Christ only. Have you really experienced this kind of salvation? Where you have seen the Son as the willing sacrifice and you have stopped 
fighting for yourself. Stop living for you. Stop saying, I want more of of my life. I want to live my life. And if you abandon yourself and follow Jesus, has the Spirit changed your heart in such a way that you stop fighting for yourself, fighting for your work, fighting for your world, everything that you want in this present age, and have you just laid it down and trusted Christ alone? Have you laid it all down in repentance and faith by the power of the Spirit? Also, I would say this. As a believer, some of us here think that God wants us to fight. Some of us here are like Peter who would draw the sword and say, oh Jesus, we'll defend you. We'll fight for this in our country or that in our country or this and that and the other. And you do all of that stuff and what you really are called to do is to follow in the steps of those who follow Jesus like Stephen who said to his accusers, Lord, do not hold the sin against And like those throughout the centuries who have laid down their life on the sacrifice and service of other people's faith, genuine saving faith produces a life of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus in His suffering and I'm going to lay it all down so that I might see some come to believe. I don't know where you are today, but I hope that you will think seriously about this text, seeing the Son, seeing His salvation in spite of our sin and trusting Him. You'd bow your heads at this time. Lord, we just come to You amazed again of Your love for us. Even while we're yet sinners, that You died for us. Even if sometimes we feel like we would be that voice in the crowd saying, silence the Son. He is all true and all knowing. and He he sees my hypocrisy. Silence Him. We know that that may be in our hearts at times. We know that in our actions it reflects that often. Lord, we sometimes want to be like Peter who stands up to to try to fight for You rather than to submit to You and follow in suffering in this present world so that some might hear and believe. Lord, give Christ Community Church a heart of service in light of what Jesus has done and how He served us that we might serve others. Lord, we know we could never do what He did for He is the once and final sacrifice for our sins. But we do want to see our lives reflect Christ's suffering. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.